the whole story goes back to oligarchy. What do the Greeks say about oligarchy? The Greeks say democracy is impossible because oligarchs are going to come along and tell people a fancy story and get them to forget about their own best interests, right? Like that's been a problem from the beginning. <laughs> and what Mr. Putin is doing is just a fancy globalized version of that. Welcome to episode nine of The Big Steel. The biggest theft in the biggest country in the world, Russia, by its own government, led by Vladimir Putin. In today's episode, we want to pull all the threads together from previous episodes and try to answer some of the questions that run through the series. How long can Putin's grip on power last? He's fixed things so he could be in power for as long as he lives. So can anything or anyone stop him? Will Russia meddle in the US presidential election again this year? And will Putin and his Kremlin cronies ever be held to account? But we want to begin today's episode with a message we received from a British man who worked in St. Petersburg, formerly known as Leningrad, in the first few years of Vladimir Putin's rule. He sums up the Kremlin kleptocracy in just a few words. I worked in Leningrad and clearly remember the corruption that started at the top. One of Putin's centres of power was the old KGB office in the town. The business I was working on had three books of accounts, one red, one black and one white. One for the officials, one for the local mafia and one for internal use. Big business, politics and organised crime, the unholy trinity of corruption in Putin's Russia and three different sets of accounts telling different stories so no one really knows the truth in a country where lies are truth and truth is anything you're told you need to believe. Mr Speaker, we repeatedly asked Russia to account for what happened in Salisbury in March and they have replied with obfuscation and lies. This is including trying to pass the blame for the attack onto terrorists, onto our international partners and even onto the future mother-in-law of Yulia Skripal. They even claimed that I myself invented Novichok. <laughs> Their attempts to hide the truth by pushing out a deluge of disinformation simply reinforces their culpability. When faced with an Orwellian system, perhaps George Orwell himself can help us, as he put it, in a time of deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. And what follows will do our best. In previous episodes, we examined some of the Kremlin's most shameless lies on matters of life and death. All the evidence points to Russian agents murdering Alexander Litvinenko with polonium in London in 2006. Until Sasha died, nobody knew it was alpha radiation and particularly polonium-210. Russia denied it. All the evidence points to Russian operatives trying to murder the Skripals with Novichok nerve agent in Salisbury in 2018. Russia denied it. All the evidence points to Russia shooting down a Malaysian airliner over Ukraine, bombing civilians in Syria, repeatedly trying to subvert its neighbours, engaging in cyber warfare and meddling in the 2016 US elections. The Russian interference in the American election was well-planned. It was a whole government approach. It involved multiple parts of the system. It was intentional, and I do believe it had a strong impact on the result. And guess what? Russia? Well, Russia denies it. The thing is, when it comes to lying, Vladimir Putin was trained as a tool of Soviet communism. He was a colonel in the KGB where lying and sowing confusion were instruments of Soviet policy. 
And so in this, the final episode of The Big Steel, we try to figure out how to handle that most difficult of situations. A great country with enormous natural resources full of immensely talented people, but led by what were described to us as a clique of bandits, where nothing the Kremlin says can immediately be mistaken for the truth. Nothing. And that clique of bandits has ensured that corruption is the backbone of the Russian state. I always say that every country has its own mafia. In Russia, mafia has its own state. The voices of Garry Kasparov, Marina Litvinenko and Anna Poban, all providing testimony to the actions of Putin. The Putin regime has interfered with democracy across the globe, thriving on conspiracy theories, messing with social media to sow confusion. We've been using the biggest steel of all, UCOS, as a case study of how Putin's Russia works. It was Russia's most successful oil company, stolen from its shareholders after the jailing of the UCOS boss, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, and others in his management team. A Dutch court has now decided to reinstate an independent arbitration ruling which orders the Russian Federation to compensate former UCOS shareholders for the unlawful expropriation of their investment. The award amounts to more than $50 billion, a measure of the company's success before it was destroyed. The Russian government has always refused to pay the compensation. Across the big steel, we've heard testimony from businessmen, academics, journalists, security experts and politicians. When asked if Russia would ever pay UCOS shareholders the $50 billion, we received a mixed response. First, Bill Browder, an American-born businessman now living in London. He was trading in Russia and became Putin's public enemy number one. He was even name-checked by Putin as a terrible criminal in Putin's first summit with President Donald Trump in Helsinki. Russia tried to get Browder arrested by Interpol because Browder has pursued the Putin regime's corruption from law courts to the US Congress and beyond. The Russians will do everything that they possibly can to avoid their legal responsibilities. There's a, a whole history of them avoiding foreign judgments um, for years and years and years. However, the Dutch court's judgment does put Russia and Putin in a very uh, uncomfortable position because he will have to defy international law in order to avoid the judgment. And, and depending on how aggressive the uh, UCO shareholders are in, in collecting that, that judgment, um, Putin and his government are going to effectively have to behave like international financial fugitives in terms of hiding their money and, and trying to duck legal process. And that'll be an interesting process to watch. I suppose, symbolically at least, it is a big moment. Well, it's absolutely a big moment. And, and the fact that, that the Russian government has effectively been slapped down by the high court in the Netherlands is really, is really important. And um, we we're all watching that. I, I was surprised that the lower court had invalidated the, the decision of the International Tribunal against Russia. And I was happy to see that that clearly um, wrong decision was overturned by the higher court. Anders Aslund, the Swedish economist and Russia expert, was a little more optimistic than Bill Browder. I asked Anders if he thought Russia might in the end pay up. Yes, I do. And the reason is twofold. One is that we have a New York convention that is uh, pretty strong. Uh, on the, the collection of international arbitration awards. And uh, all Western countries and most other countries uh, subscribe to it. And uh, the claim is on the Russian uh, state. 
So uh, there's no way that Russia can avoid having assets uh, available. This means that the, the Yukos owners can collect from Gazprom and Rosneft that have plenty of assets in Europe. And the other reason is that Gazprom actually paid an arbitration award of $2.9 billion in December in cash to Nafta Gas in Ukraine. And this was after Gazprom had claimed that we are not going to pay Nafta Gas. This is completely outrageous. Gazprom had lost that case in the arbitration court in, in Stockholm. And it was openly ambitiously going against it. And then Ukraine froze about $10 billion of Gazprom assets in Europe, in particular in the Netherlands, which is very much the hub of European energy trade. And then Gazprom found, after a couple of months, that it had little to do but to pay. So I think that uh, the Yukos owners now have a very good chance of collecting. I'm not saying that they will get the whole amount, but uh, my guess is that there will be amicable settlement at some uh, amount. But uh, undoubtedly the Russian government will have to pay billions of dollars for its uh, confiscation of the Yukos. All these kinds of cases, all of these efforts to hold people in Russia accountable, for the, the, the kind of fraud that they've carried out and the illegal way in which they have um, stolen resources. I mean, all these things are useful. Anne Applebaum is a historian, author and journalist. She's written extensively about Russia and the former Soviet Union. Realistically, do I think Putin's government will ever pay out that money? No. <laughs> um, do I think that there will ever be compensation paid or at least under the, under the current government? You know, no. But... Yes, I think it's very important, at least for the West, that these kinds of legal judgments are made so that people have better grasp of what kind of regime it is that we're dealing with. We'll get on to what's going on inside the Russian system in a minute, but I just wondered whether Putin is at all sensitive to the way in which he is now increasingly seen around the world, increasingly seen as being a crook, a manipulator, perhaps not stretching all the way to the White House, perhaps not everybody sees this, but does his image matter to him and the fact that he's cut off from some of these international gatherings that he would expect to be part of? I think Putin was initially hurt to be cut out of international gatherings. Um, he was very angry to be chucked out of the G8, which once again became the G7. He was frustrated by his exclusion. I know many of the people around him are very frustrated by um, by losing their ability to travel freely in the West. Um does he really care, though, about his image and Russia's image in the traditional sense and that, you know, he wants his country to be thought of as a nice place? I think the answer is no. One of the important differences between modern Russian propaganda and Soviet propaganda is that Russian propaganda is not about saying Russia is a better country or a more moral country. It's about saying, OK, we're corrupt. You're corrupt, too. Everybody's corrupt. Be cynical. You know, steal what you can and support me because I'm strongest. In other words, it's a different message that he's sending to the world. In other words, it's a message of, you know, we're, we're evil and powerful and we're, we're cynical and, you know, we're going to win this contest of, you know, bad guys versus bad guys against you. So, you know, so although, I, as I said, I think initially he was hurt to be cut out, he's now, the, 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 the propaganda and the conversation that he's now built 
is pushing Russians and, and others in another direction. One of the questions that's come up from people who've listened to our podcast series and some of the things you've been saying is, why have why has the West done so little about this? We say things, we say we're absolutely appalled about the Skripal case or the Litvinenko case or the shootdown of MH17 and so on. And then not much happens. I mean, is that is that fair? Not much has happened. It's not entirely fair. I mean, we have put sanctions on Russia. We have cut Russia out of um, a number of international clubs and conversations. From 2014 onward, there was a rise in understanding of what Russia was, what was the nature of the regime, you know, which didn't exist at all before that. And I, I you know, I have to say to people, I mean, in, in Britain in particular, the awareness has, has risen quite a bit. But I think in a more fundamental way, you're right in that most people, certainly most Europeans, um, quite a lot of people in Washington even, haven't seen the Putin regime for the threat both to our values and to our kind of financial markets and our business world that they are. We've still failed to understand that the world of money laundering and, and hidden money has, is, has corrupted our own societies from within. I mean, whether it's the property market in London, you know, or the ways in which offshore bank accounts and, and lawyers and, and tax authorities work, um, we've failed to understand that those are harming us and our societies are losing money and influence. Our governments, you know, are losing part of their tax base because of criminal activity coming from Russia. And we, we have really failed to understand the degree to which this kind of behavior is now inside our system and corrupting it from within. Anne suggests that the Russian kleptocrats, the officials and oligarchs who got rich quick for their part in the big steal, do have a weak point. And that's their desire to spend their money on the good things in life. Yachts in the Mediterranean, luxury apartments in New York and London. Billions of rubles are spilling out of Russia into Western economies, much of it through London. But the money is the key. If cash from Putin or his inner circle turns up in the West, the investments could be frozen and the Kremlin kleptocrats would soon get the message. Here's Anders Asland again. Private Russians have something like $800 billion to $1 trillion of money abroad. And uh, this is, of course, vital for them. A fair guess is that about one quarter of his money belongs to Putin and his friends. And if this was exposed and frozen, that would cause an enormous damage to them and would weaken them domestically because they would not have that resource. Really dirty Russian money is hidden under 20, 30 layers of shell companies. Typically, these are from a dozen different jurisdictions. I've seen some of these schemes and they're like clouds of companies. Money uh, traditionally went out through Cyprus, then to the British Virgin Islands, then to Cayman Islands. In each place, they got half a dozen of shell companies, then either to two places, Wilmington, Delaware, or London. So these are the big places of uh, black Russian money. A fair guess is $200 billion or so in Britain, much of it in real estate and perhaps $400 billion in the US. So these are the two all-dominant addresses, but we don't have proper statistics on it. Following the money isn't so easy, but that's where the Magnitsky Act and Britain's unexplained wealth orders come in handy. 
The Magnitsky Act was Bill Browder's idea, and it explains why Putin hates Browder so much. Sergei Magnitsky was a Russian lawyer acting for Browder. He was murdered after discovering how senior Russian officials stole $230 million that Browder's company had paid in tax to the Russian government. The Magnitsky Act was passed by the US Congress and it's inspired similar laws elsewhere. The Act allows governments to sanction those who are human rights offenders, freeze their assets and ban them from entering the country. For those who want multi-million dollar apartments in New York or London, that's a big spoiler of their fun. I asked Browder how his campaign was going. I have two big uh, objectives. One is a political objective, which is to get the Magnitsky Act passed in as many countries around the world as possible. And there are two big um, developments on the horizon. The first is the European Union. The EU had, had for 10 years been avoiding this issue, but in December, um, the uh, Council, the European Council, which consists of all the different members of the European Union, made a decision in principle to have an EU Magnitsky Act. And now we're trying to get it implemented in practice, which they said they would do. There's one interesting little caveat on this on this EU activity, which is that Putin desperately doesn't want it to be called the Magnitsky Act because it's so symbolic and it so clearly um, shows his own uh, murderous tendencies and his lawlessness. And he tried in other countries very, very aggressively with lots of resources to have Magnitsky's name taken off of the U.S. Magnitsky Act and the Canadian Magnitsky Act and so on, and never succeeded. So far, um, he, he looks like he may have succeeded in the EU. The, um, uh, a number of countries like Hungary and, and other sort of friendly countries to Putin have made a big point of trying to take Magnitsky's name off of the EU Magnitsky Act. And that's, that will be a huge political gift to Putin if the Magnitsky Act goes through without the name Magnitsky on it. But um, at the same time, I'm fighting every way I can to stop that. And, and I think there's a lot of people in <clears throat> many governments and certainly in the European Parliament that don't want to give Putin uh, this political gift when he certainly doesn't deserve it. Uh, the other big development we're working on is an Australian Magnitsky Act. And that seems to be going very, very well. Uh, the only problem is that um, I was supposed to go to Australia to bring it home effectively to to uh, testify in front of their parliament. And um, I haven't been able to go for, for obvious reasons with the uh, health crisis going on at the moment. So that's what's going on on the political side. And then on the law enforcement side, we have um, been tracing the money that Sergei Magnitsky exposed and was killed over. And we found it going to many, many countries around the world. And there are now 16 different countries that are that have criminal investigations open. What we're seeing is that some countries, which uh, in the past hadn't been cooperating, are starting to cooperate. So, for example, Latvia, which is considered to be one, which was considered to be one of the most sort of lax countries um, in Europe and um, in the Baltics, now all of a sudden has a, a new team on their law enforcement who just froze a few properties in Latvia uh, two weeks ago as a result of, uh, of of the criminal investigation, and so. We're, we're sort of working with law enforcement all over the world to have them seize properties, seize assets, seize bank accounts of people who benefited from the crime that Sergei Magnitsky was killed over. How are we doing in the United Kingdom, do you think? The United Kingdom, we're doing very badly. Um, I would say that, surprisingly, um, the UK is probably the most lax, the most lenient place for money launderers. 
And uh, the United Kingdom was the country that received the largest amount of money from the $230 million that Sergei Magnitsky exposed and was killed over. And to this day, there's not been a single criminal investigation open in spite of making numerous attempts uh, at the uh, National Crime Agency, at the Serious Fraud Office, at the Metropolitan Police, at the City of London Police, at the HMRC, at the FCA. None of these organizations wanted to open a criminal case. And it's not because the evidence isn't there, because the same evidence that we've used to open cases in many other countries has been used to try to get a case open in the UK without any luck so far. What do you think is going on there? We say we're a democracy. We say we want a clean banking system. We say that uh, we don't like, uh, you know, we don't like people m- murdering Mr. Lintvinenko in London or uh, attacking the Skripals. And yet what we do doesn't seem to match quite what we say. It's perplexing for me. And I've spent many, many years trying to deal with this situation. For somebody who doesn't know this country and they just think of the reputation of the United Kingdom, they think, oh, well, this is a very uh, upright, rule of law, appropriate, legitimate country. But as a campaigner and as a person um, trying to deal with criminal justice, we have a situation where that's just not the case. For the Russia watchers we've talked to, following the money is only part of the story. The real danger from Putin comes from false information, fake news and meddling in democracy itself. The infamous troll factories of St. Petersburg are working overtime. They use Britain's Brexit referendum as a test run before interfering in the US elections in 2016. Meanwhile in Britain, there was sufficient cause to suspect Russia was meddling in democracy here too. That suspicion led to an investigation, but unfortunately, the long-awaited parliamentary report is yet to be published. Which is a pity, because in America in 2020, we have another US presidential election. Here's Bill Browder again. There was Russian interference proved to be involved in the 2016 election, and there's Russian interference right now. It's, it's remarkable. It's this great open flank of liberal democracy and free speech that the Russians are able to take advantage of it. And so far, the U.S. has chosen to take no decision to stop it. I asked Anne Applebaum if since the hacking of Hillary Clinton's emails in 2016, the U.S. authorities and media had wised up to Russian dirty tricks. I don't think all that much progress has been made in the United States, actually, as regarding disinformation and dubious sources. Um, The important difference probably between now and 2016 is that at least the biggest social media platforms are now making some effort. I don't want to exaggerate how effective it is, but they're making some effort to eliminate clearly false accounts and they have better ways of finding and identifying false accounts. And that seems to have, you know, they have eliminated many, many thousands of them, I mean, not just Russian, but, but, but others. And they seem to be trying to grapple with or get a handle on some of the ways in which their platforms were abused in the past. But remember that in 2016, the most successful thing the Russians did had nothing to do with the fake accounts. It was the hacking of the Democratic National Committee and the publication of people's emails, which you know, in retrospect, were all completely anodyne and banal. Um, And nevertheless, these became the main media story for many days, um, undermining Hillary Clinton's campaign. That kind of effort can happen again. Um, And the, the question will be whether mainstream and other media in the United States or anywhere else is now prepared to grapple with and understand 
you know, how, you know, know, prepared to not publicize that kind of information. And that I just don't know. I mean, we'll see whether people have learned their lesson or not. I mean, I think some some have and some haven't. So Russia's cyber campaign continues to roll on, but it's now down to the authorities in the US to stop it or for the media to highlight it and force the government to do something about it. But the biggest puzzle of the big steel is Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin himself. What does this calm, clever and extremely ruthless man really want? Why does he need more money than anyone could ever spend? And is there anyone or anything who could stop him? A year ago, when we started researching this series, there was a feeling that Putin's grip on power might be loosening. But now there's a new Russian constitution and one particular amendment which would allow him to seek another two terms in the Kremlin. Vladimir Putin could still be in power until 2036. This depends upon a public vote, a plebiscite, and that has been postponed because of coronavirus. But when it does happen, no one expects a surprise upset for President Putin's ambitions. Vladimir Karamurza is an opposition politician. Last time we spoke, he was fairly optimistic that there'd be a power shift. But since our last conversation, the world has become a very different place. We spoke on an anniversary for Mr. Putin. Today marks 20 years since he became president of Russia. It's a full generation. You know, there are people who were born, grew up, went to school, went to university, are now entering their adult lives along this while as one and the same man sitting in the Kremlin. Uh, and so you could think that that would be the brainwashed generation, a uh, generation that has no other political memories, has no perception of any other political reality, which they don't. But ironically, and that's a very good irony, uh, it is that generation, the Putin generation, if you want to call it that, whose representatives are increasingly realizing that things aren't how they're supposed to be um, and who are increasingly demanding change and who want Russia to become a normal European country. That is our ambition. Since at least 2003, it's been clear that Putin wants to stay in power for as long as he's physically alive. Now, of course, a dictator's intention is one thing, and the reality is another. I don't think that Lenin, when he spoke uh, in Zurich in January 1917 to a group of Swiss social democrats and said that my generation will not live to see the decisive battles of this coming revolution, predicted that the revolution would start in six weeks, which it did. And I'm old enough myself to remember August of 1991, when one of the most repressive regimes in the history of humanity went down in three days. And nobody at the beginning of August of 1991 could have predicted that at the end of the month there will no longer be a Soviet regime, and by the end of the year there will no longer be the Soviet Union itself. So. Um, That's a big caveat about Russia. It's very difficult, not impossible, to predict political change. Vladimir Karamurza is right to suggest that predicting the future anywhere, but especially in Russia, is a mugs game. Yet if Putin looks unassailable, what's the point of the protests against him? A few minutes of protests can lead to a few years in jail. But I disagree that it's been completely fruitless and that's been, you know, completely uh, lacking in results. I'll never forget the protest winter of 2011, 2012. Out of nowhere, we had more than 100,000 people uh, standing in the middle of Moscow, just a stone's throw away from the Kremlin, uh, demanding Putin's resignation. These were, and remain to this day, the largest uh, protests, opposition protests, uh, during Putin's years in power. And I will never forget how frightened and disoriented and lost 
the regime was in those few days in December of 2011. When for the first few days they didn't know what to do, they didn't know how to react, they didn't expect this. This came seemingly out of nowhere. Um, and I think one of the things that this regime took from that protest winter uh, is that uh, there is nothing they fear more, or no one I should say that they fear more than their own people. And we continue to see that in everything that this regime is doing. We, just a few months ago, we all saw the massive and violent crackdown on peaceful demonstrations in Moscow when people went out to peacefully protest, to express or to exercise their constitutional right to protest against the blatant disqualification of opposition candidates from elections. And in return, uh, we saw, you know, fully armed SWAT teams beating down uh, peaceful demonstrators, you know, with rubber batons, uh, arresting people by the hundreds. I think on the one day, more than 1,500 arrests were made in Moscow in July uh, of 2019. And so I think it's important to keep in mind that one of the biggest myths created by the Putin regime is that how Vladimir Putin is supposedly popular in Russia. If he was really that popular, if he was as popular as he said, why is he so afraid of a free election? Why is he so afraid of allowing opponents on the ballot? Wouldn't he defeat them if he were as popular as, as he says? Why does he feel the need to send armed National Guard officers and, and riot police to beat up and arrest peaceful protesters? Why is he so adamant about controlling and censoring the media and not allowing alternative viewpoints uh, to reach citizens of Russia. Uh, and, you know, we're talking about that election um, that happened 20 years ago today, the 26th of March of 2000. This was the last election to this day in Russia, national election, that was recognized by OSCE and Council of Europe observers as free and fair. Not a single election since, parliamentary or presidential, has met that standard. Uh, and I think that is the best possible answer to those propaganda myths about Putin's so-called popularity. Again, if he were as popular as he says, why is he so afraid of facing competition at the ballot box? Vladimir Karamurza remains upbeat and perhaps like a character in an Ernest Hemingway novel, change will come to Putin and Russia to surprise us all. Hemingway has a businessman being asked how he became bankrupt. Two ways, he said, slowly at first and then suddenly. The anti-Putin campaigners live in hope that slowly Putin will lose power and then suddenly. And Applebaum says cautiously, don't rule anything out. It's impossible to make predictions about Russia. This is a country where change seems impossible. Nothing's going to happen. You know, everything is in stasis. And then they have street revolutions. And, you know, twice in the last hundred years that's happened, um, you know, in 1917 and again in, in, in 1991. So making a prediction that, um, you know, that nothing will happen is risky. Um, making a prediction that something specific will happen is also risky. Um, all dictatorships do require, at some level, the acceptance or the acquiescence of their public. And, you know, if there is a broad and widespread refusal to acquiesce in Russia, then yes, I can imagine you could get a change. Um, either, even if not from a street revolution, then from an insider kind of knife in the back scenario, literal or figurative. So I don't want to, I don't want to exclude the possibility of change. And I know that there are a lot of Russians who do believe it's possible, you know, but I also wouldn't want to make any concrete predictions. 
Bill Browder takes the view that Putin will be around for a lot longer. The reason? Survival. It's not just the money. If he loses power, he might also lose his freedom and his life. Well, Vladimir Putin is never going to step down willingly from, from his position of power. And the reason for that is that um, he's chosen to become president initially for money. And uh, he's, he's become extremely, extremely rich um, by stealing money from the state, stealing money from Russian people, stealing money from Russian oligarchs, stealing money any way he can. He's stolen $200 billion, I would, I would guess, maybe more at this point. And, um, uh, and if, if at any point he's no longer in power, um, that money will evaporate. He doesn't hold that money in his own name. He holds that money in the name of people I call oligarch trustees. And if he's no longer in power, they just won't give it back to him. And worse than that, he probably goes to jail for all the people he's murdered. And in jail, God knows what happens to him. And so from his perspective, he can never step down from power. He's got to stay in power into perpetuity. They say never let the opportunity of a good crisis go unexploited. And so in the midst of this coronavirus crisis, um, he's uh, effectively declared himself president for life. And um, he will stay in power until he's no longer alive. And then there's the unexpected. A global plague, for example. The coronavirus pandemic has changed our world, but in the short term, it might conceivably be good for authoritarian leaders like Putin. It puts an end on health grounds to street protests. I mean, I hate to predict anything about how the coronavirus will affect anything because we're, we're still in the very early phases of this pandemic. Um, but it is true that, you know, on, on March 16th, so right as the coronavirus was beginning to spread um, mo very noticeably in Russia after the Russians initially denied that they had any cases. Um, the Russia's constitutional court approved constitutional amendments that could enable Putin to remain in power for another 16 years. Um, in effect, they, because they've rewritten the constitution, they've announced that means that Putin wasn't really president or he was president of a different kind of country before. And so now the fact that he's already served out his legal terms is annulled and he can start all over again. Um, so he's now able to remain president pretty much almost indefinitely under this constitutional norm. And yes, they they did. This was a decision that happened, you know, as people were beginning to panic at a moment when opposition was not able to organize at a moment when, you know, it was pretty clear nobody was going to be able to push back. So, you know, that he will use this opportunity, you know, this, of, of the disease to take more power. I mean, he's already done it, that he will use it to institute more perhaps Chinese-style surveillance in Russia. I think that's also probably pretty likely. I do expect him to try to use this catastrophe to maintain his own power. I mean, having said that, if the virus um, is, is devastating in Russia, as it very well could be, then almost anything else could happen. Um, I've seen some polling recently which shows his support, um, even though these you know, polls are always dubious in Russia, but it shows his support dropping quite dramatically. And who knows what that will mean down the road if Russia hits a real health and economic crisis. The charge sheet we have revealed in The Big Steel against Vladimir Putin and his associates is enormous. Meddling in elections, murdering opponents, invading Ukraine, annexing Crimea, killing passengers in a Malaysian airliner, bombing civilians in Syria and Ukraine, on and on it goes. But what is striking is that absolutely none of this in any way improves the lives of ordinary Russians. 
The Big Steal has not just been about stealing Russia's money and resources, it's been about stealing Russia's future. We focused on the Yukos Khodorkovsky saga only in part to explain the biggest theft in history. Even more important, it also explains the road Russia did not take after the fall of communism. Vladimir Putin could have gone down a very different economic path, as Mikhail Khodorkovsky and others told us. The rule of law, proper governance, transparent accounts and diversifying away from oil and gas. Instead of stamping out corruption, the Kremlin became home to its most successful exponents. That's why so many enterprising Russians have left the country they love. That's why Vladimir Putin has underdeveloped Russia. And that's why Mr Putin represents not just a deadly threat to those who oppose him, but a threat to truth itself. After all, if a corrupt system cannot alter the lives of ordinary Russians for the better then the system needs to try to alter the way they see the reality of their lives. And lies are all you're left with. The Big Steel was presented by me, Gavin Esler, and produced by Martin Points Roberts at Fresh Air Production. <laughs>